out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the guitarist and songwriter. It's the one and only Nick Hefner, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, has just brought a new album out titled What Time Can Do, which is on Dimple Discs of Records, the second one on that particular label in the last few years. Also released an album in 2019 titled A New Life Awaits You. Um, and in 87, he released the album The Great Indoors. Before that was in the T set. Anyway, you're going to find out all about this and much more in this next interview. So look, after several minutes of interest and a casual chat, chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Nick, it's over to you. Well, you know, now I... Now I have to kind of look back on my life and make sense of it a bit for people. I, I've been trying to get some kind of story about me and music. And I, I, I suppose part of the way I'm trying to see it now is that I have one foot in my older brothers and sisters taste. Um, and one foot in the time that I first started playing music. So basically, um, I was an accident. I wasn't planned for. And my older brothers and sisters are fair quite a lot older than me. Um, but, you know, I I just remember being a kid in the 60s. So I was born in 59, but I was I was a kid in the 60s and around the house, my older brothers and sisters had a lot of the kind of cult classic records of the late 60s and early 70s, I think. So they had, I don't know, you know, Fairport Convention, Incredible String Band, lots of things like that. Lots of kind of folk rock, Leonard Cohen, um, Beatles White Album. Um, they didn't have a massive amount of stuff, but it was quite interesting. You know, I think they had quite good kind of interesting taste. So I yes. had one foot growing up with that and singles that I just played to death, being an annoying kid, just playing the same single over and over again. Um, and I think kind of Help and Eleanor Rigby, that kind of thing. I probably wore that out to death. Um, and, um, and then uh, my sister... My one of my older sisters, who was the one who's most into music, she said, um, oh, I started buying pop records. So that time you're talking about when when you were interested in what was going on in the charts in the early 70s. Yes. So I would have been, you know, sort of 13, 14 then. And I was going out and buying lots of pop records and lots of stuff in the charts. And I think my sister, who prided herself on having sort of more discerning taste in music, sort of felt like she's weaned me off pop a bit. Um, so she took me into a record store and she said, well, I'll buy you an album. So actually you could listen to stuff. We were talking about how you actually first listen to things, but in the, in the big HMV store in Piccadilly Circus, I think it was, they had headphones. So she suggested a few things and I stuck the headphones on and listened to some things. And I ended up with a, a Melanie album. Um, and she was this very intense Jewish singer songwriter from New York um and had the edwin hawkins singers on it doing gospel singings on, on one track no, that's... so i suppose out of that i got kind of folk singer songwriter psychedelia folk rock um uh i loved records that had quite high production values um and had all these sort of like amazing session musicians on them and, and they, they, all the singer songwriters just had the sort of cream of the session musicians on and great arrangers and i loved all the arrangements and the orchestral instruments and 
that Melanie album just sort of typical in, in just having an incredible range of musical instruments on it. Yes. Um, and then, the, so that was one foot was in my, what you could think of as my siblings culture of the early 60s and early, uh, late 60s and early 70s. And then I came of age musically in the late 70s and got in my first bands in the late 70s and early 80s. So that was post-punk, really, I suppose. So I had kind yeah. of one one foot in that in that sort of earlier era and one foot in kind of post-punk. Yes. And, when, and were your um, parents at all, you know, artistic or musical at this stage? Yeah, a bit. I think my dad taught himself to play the violin and he, could, he taught himself to, to, to read music. Um, yeah, I think he was quite musical. He was, they were slightly kind of, a little bit bohemian, but a little bit kind of puritanical. So, so I mean, they were older. So my dad was in his 40s when I was young, and he hated the pop music of the 60s, but he loved folk music. He loved kind of folk and traditional music. Right. So but, but people like Bert Yance, the McCarthy, uh, you know, Martin McCarthy McC and, and the Watersons and people like that. What about the Incredible String Band or Comus? Were were those artists at all coming into your consciousness at that I, I stage? I think Comus was, even for my brothers and sisters, that would have been a little bit esoteric for them. I don't think, so none of them were, were followed music really seriously, I think. Um so I think I think something like Comus I discovered quite a lot later. But Incredible String Bands, the, the the sister that took me to the record shop, she loved Incredible String Band and still does. Yes. Um, and I still do. I think those records are magic. They're fantastic. Fantastic. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. and I, I did Melanie was one of those artists that you know I got really obsessed with and uh, just loved. Ah. Beautiful, beautiful people. And I loved the the kind of the big production number with the choir, you know, um, which I haven't listened yeah, to yeah. for ages, but it used to be one of those going through that sort of hippie new age world of, you know, you just wanted to be all very loving and beautiful. And I did a few, I did an interview with her a few years ago, which was just oh, so wow. exciting wow. to kind of eventually sort of get to interview Melanie because she, you know, she was a bit of a soundtrack in my life. And also she played Woodstock like the incredible string band, bizarrely. And, um, Yes, it was quite interesting because I did an interview with Rose from the band who brought a book out right. a few years ago. And that was quite interesting hearing her experience of working with such an interesting kind of lineup. And um, yes, there you go. So then when, so when punk happened, obviously you were on your own at this stage. What was it like when Dr. Feelgood appeared and then sort of the damned? And Well, and... Dr. Feelgood, it's interesting that you mentioned Dr. Feelgood because Dr. Feelgood affected me a lot more than punk rock did. And I was a bit precocious. I mean, so much of what formed me was happening when I was 13, 14, that kind of thing. And I think so Dr. Feelgood came about when I was, I think, 14, 15 or something at school. But there was a bunch of kids who were definitely the cool crowd who were into music. And they I remember them carrying around record sleeves. So they had sort of creamed Israeli gears under the record sleeves so that everybody could see what they were carrying. And then one day it all just turned and suddenly it was all about Dr. Feelgood and all of this stuff about, you know, blues, uh, psychedelic blues and all that kind of stuff. That, that was all out the window. And they would just be going, going up to people and they say, you have to go and see this band. They're just life changing. They're incredible. Um, and I did. And I got the bug. And I suppose, yeah, and we were all sort of sneaking into pubs underage and things like that. So I did I did start to follow some of the pub rock gigs 
And where I lived in St Albans, there was St Albans City Hall. And they, yeah, bands like Dr Feelgood and the Pirates, who'd influenced Wilco Johnson so much, uh, Mick Green. I remember going to see them several times. They came to St Albans City Hall two or three times, I think. And I love yes. them. Um, and do, what about Richard Strange and the Doctors of Madness and those people like that? Well, probably not specifically them, although um, Lily, uh, uh, a lady called Lily, um, sang on the 2019 album that I made, and she is the stepdaughter of Richard Strange. And she sang on their last album, I think, which they made with John Leckie. So she was really super excited about that because she's quite young. Yes. Um, and she's telling me a lot about that. But I, I don't know. I think I think probably somebody like Richard Strange, I'd be very surprised if people in the tea set that I was in didn't know Richard Strange. Because I think he was he got about a bit, didn't he? He, he did. He knew he did. everybody, I think. He was quite something. I think. I think from from sort of I did an interview with him. He said that they were two years too early for punk, but everybody in the audience formed punk punk bands, and they were by yeah. the age of twenty four, it was all over yeah. for them. So that was always. Yeah, so, so you're thinking about it like in the way that Doctor Feelgood sort of anticipated all of that. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, so I think I, th I think Doctor Feelgood were a bit like my Pistols, and when the Pistols came along, I was a bit less impressed by them. I, I, I don't know quite what reasons I could give for that, but. I I kind of had my big, you know, lightning conversion with Doctor Feelgood. I think. Yes. Well, it's it's an exciting. Did you, as a sort of being a serious muser at this age of being you know, from thirteen onwards? I mean, did I mean then the prog rock world had appeared as well, wasn't there? The Yes Genesis combination, Wishbone Ash, yeah, Focus. Quite... Did you did you not sort of get a bit excited with hearing Focus at the Rainbow and things like that? I did. I went to I went to the Rainbow. That was one of the places I would go and see bands. I never really liked when 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 so many of these bands got super successful and started playing Wembley Stadium. I didn't really like that very much. I saw one or two of the people I'd always wanted to see at Wembley Stadium. I think I saw The Who and one or two other people. But on the whole, my happiest memories are those sort of slightly smaller places like the Rainbow. And yeah, I went through I went through a phase. I saw Genesis. I saw Yes. I saw ELP. I think um, uh, probably being one of those people who likes to sort of pull one up on other people at that time with my culty tastes. I think my favourite was Gentle Giant. I really right. liked Gentle Giant, um, and I think I liked them more than any of the other bands. But I was going to say, you know, I think that with with me in the early seventies, it's turned sour pretty quickly. So I. I remember the last year I was really excited by any of those bands or any of that stuff that was going on was 73. And by 74, the the albums they were making were turning me off mm. and was going off them. So, and I I think one thing I'll, I'll for, for those people who disapprove of, of prog, you know, one thing I'll say in my defense about my stuff is that I'm sure there's a, a, a prog strand in it. And I was interviewed by prog magazine, but, um, I really hate doing stuff that's longer than about three and a half minutes. I very rarely do anything that's longer than three and a half minutes. <laughs> yes. I think, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's something about, about prog that I just really didn't follow any further. And all that stuff about, you know, 
topographic oceans stuff lasting aside each or something like that i i got really bored with that yes it was a bit tricky i did i did actually buy that what that album for Chris, a christmas present once so well there you are you see so so i bought it to see what it was like but you know it, it disappointed me and kind of yes i do have a soft spot for one track which only lasts 10 minutes which is into the heart of the sunrise which i still think has a beautiful ending but it, you can yeah. skip it until they get to the they get to the bit which really starts to go kind of, right we're getting to the conclusion now it's a bit like yeah. one of those you just think, oh, there's a lot of filler in this, isn't there? And everyone has to do their solo. And then you get to that little bit where John Anderson's vocals are quite beautiful. And it's a nice sentimental song. It's one that play, you know, I occasionally play in the summertime. So um, it's quite well, I funny. Think, I, th I think the early stuff by the prog bands, they did some great pop. Um, and, the, the, you know, the sort of three and a half, four minute songs. There's some great stuff. I, I love the the first couple of Jethro Tull albums, Benefit. I think that's got brilliant. Oh, songs. yes. I love Benefit and uh, Minstrel in the Gallery. I think that's a really good album. Um, yes. But again, I just, I really went off them right by the mid 70s. I really didn't like what they were doing. Um, yes. I think I think I like the, the, I think there's a sort of a folk kind of part of me that I love that kind of pastoral you know that very romanticism of kind of old england which i know doesn't exist and is used oh, badly yeah. politically but there is something about wood smoke and woods and and sort of yeah just nature i, I come from the countryside as well but you know mm -hmm. the idea of yes getting out there watching the sunrise sunsets and all that kind of malarkey so early jethro Tull, like stand up benefit and minstrel in the gallery the albums and then you know a bit like you I just went, no, I'm not that interested anymore. It's all become a bit too... There's something... Oh, um, Songs from the Wood is the album that I really love, actually. So yeah, go. well, that's got... You know, I think... I think I, I still like the folky bits and I still like the songwriting bits. The, the, the There's something about me and virtuosity that I've also, I also just... I talk to a friend of mine quite a lot and he is a... He's a very serious music fan, but he loves stuff that doesn't have structure, where people stretch out and improvise. And he likes a lot of jazz, but he also likes a lot of funk and things like that. Um, and I'm a bit the opposite. I It's just partly my temperament. I don't know what it is about me, but I just, I just like things that are quite structured and short. And, 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 and also just because I... I have no virtuosity, but I'm in my defense again. I think um, one of my favorite musicians is always George Harrison. And I always, to me, the kind of guitar playing that I did was always that kind of thing that I think George Harrison did, which was to have to write it before you did it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <I think. laughs> That's kind of always what I've done. You know, if I've done a solo, I'll spend sort of two or three days writing it and play it. Excellent. And I can't stretch out. I'm not somebody who can do virtuosity. And I don't, I'm not very keen on other listening to other people stretch out and, and show off their virtuosity. I yes. love people who, who do very structured stuff. And and that's that's the way I am, I think. You know, I, I respect my friend and his taste. And I know that what, the stuff that he emails me is marvellous and marvellous playing. But it's, um, yeah, I can't relate to it very well. I, no. No, absolutely. No, I just sort of think what you're supposed to do when you listen to it is like, I'll just go and do the washing yeah. up. So, um, yes, I'm you know, a bit... you're supposed to just sort of marvel at how yeah. great these people are. And I, I, I like those people who are, who are kind of just, you know, found something nice that went with the song. <laughs> <Kind of. laughs> 
Yes, well, absolutely. So when you got 75, you were 16 at this age. Did you leave school or stay on for A-levels at that point? Yeah, so I mean, um, I wasn't good at school, partly because I was totally distracted. While I was at school, I was nuts about music and nothing much else mattered. And I was with a bunch of people and we tended to think we were a bit too cool for school. I had a real problem with authority. Um, I really bristled at being told what to do and being told off and that kind of thing. And I crashed out of school with um, whatever it was, sort of two O levels or something like that. And my dad pleaded with me to go to carry on my education somehow or other and eventually persuaded me to go to the local further education college, which I did. And then that was exciting to me because punk was really breaking out there and there were people with yeah. crazy coloured hair and things like that. And I think I, I took a couple of A-levels and I think I passed one or something like that. And this is all, I'm telling you this, but I, I, would, I kept very quiet about this for a very long time because what I spent the 30 years doing was being an academic. Um, and eventually sort of leading a team of very qualified, very academic people. I've never told any of them that I did so badly at school. Yes. It probably wouldn't go down too well. Um but um but yeah, I I um I really wasn't interested in 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 education and school very much, and music was everything. Um and I think, I, but but I think during that time it was a little bit different. Well, and especially a bit later, it's even more different. Where you know there was no the the eighties, you know the the miners' strike, the you know Greenham Common, you know the Falkland War. There was a sort of sense it was all over. So an awful lot of academics I know, you know, they all went to see Hawkwind. They all took LSD. They all were, you know, they were like we 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 flunked all that, and then we went. Oh, actually, uh-huh. yeah, lived in squats, and then went. Oh, actually, actually I'll you know, no, I'll need to get back and, oh, buy me, I've done a degree, a master's, now I'm doing a PhD and, oh, my God, now I'm at a uni, university teaching and, and becoming, you know, a professor. I, I think there's there's a, an appalling number of academics who used to be in bands. Um, uh, some of my colleagues sort of thought this was a very interesting thing about me and I would try to avoid getting into conversation about it for two reasons. One was that I was desperately trying to establish my credentials as a you know, somebody who might be taken more seriously <laughs> and not someone who was just a failed musician. <laughs> sort of got into it. And yes. the second thing was that I was a bit, I, I, I dropped out of music because I got incredibly disillusioned and a little bit bitter, you know, and I didn't want to go back there and revisit all of that. Um, disappointment i know it does happen yeah. so you you got your a level which is good um yeah. but then did you join the is it the t set at this stage how does this develop so there was quite an active local scene where i was living in st albans and there was a independent record label which started off being called waldos um, and that put out local punk bands from st albans and watford um and uh, I was at that time trying to, so I've, a big part of my music making has just been centred on my bedroom and recording and much more so than live, I think, 
you know that 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 that's been my story is that I spent hours and hours and hours in a room just recording stuff over and over and over again and overdubbing and all that stuff. So basically, I'd figured out how to do overdubs by bouncing from one crappy cassette recorder to another through a mixer, and I met this guy called Clive Pig, who was a local punk folk guy. He was mm-hmm. quite eccentric. He still is. I know him. He's he's sung on my sung a track on my new album, and um, he he at that time was very obsessed with Bowie and Elvis Costello and Jacques Brel, and he was going around the folk club scaring the wits out of these old folkies by sort of bellowing out these uh, operatic kind of uh, dramatic, intense kind of songs, um, and um, uh, he was obviously quite talented and and. He knew all these chords on the guitar that I didn't know. Um, and he'd written this song called Happy Birthday, Sweet 16. And everywhere he went, people said to him, mate, you know, that's a hit single. You got yourself a hit single there. It's amazing. And it's this sort of white reggae Elvis Costello type song with very kind of social realist lyrics about a girl who's going through all these teenage things and her, uh, her dad's too busy reading his dirty magazines to care about her and things like that. Um, and... Um, and doesn't care about her when she gets cystitis. This was in the lyrics. Um, but um, so I, I was working with Clive and a couple of other people trying to do a demo for this song, thinking that he might get a, a hit out of it. And we knew about this guy who had a local record label called Phil Smee, Waldo's Records. So our target was to get a demo good enough that we could take round to Phil and maybe he'd release it. Um, and um, so... Uh, we, we had a couple of goes and eventually Phil said, yeah, 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 I'm going for it. So um, Phil put it out on Waldo's records. It was banned by the BBC almost straight away because of the lyrics. Um, and um, actually, I, I to this day, I think the demo is quite a lot better than the recorded version that we did. But Phil took us, Phil was crazy about reggae and he took us to Gooseberry Studios that was owned by Dennis Bavel. And Dennis Bavel was there, I think, and did us a dub mix of the song um but we were very young and we it wasn't to me it wasn't a great record it was a great song but it wasn't a great record and we weren't quite up to doing it justice probably and then the t-shirt heard some demos i'd done with clive pig and they invited me to join the band and the big story behind that was that the t-shirt had had some indie success they'd had a big indie hit with parry thomas which i think is their best record i think it's fantastic but that was done before I joined. And then um, uh, Hugh Cornwall of the Stranglers was in prison on drugs charges and heard the T-set on the radio and said, when I get out of prison, uh, I want to produce that band. Oh, that's right. We'd done a Peel session. That was the first thing I did with them was a Peel session, which yes. it was really exciting. And it's a good Peel session. And so when he came out of prison, he did produce us. But we went into Wessex studio and he was really inexperienced as a producer and he pissed away all the money on the B-side, which didn't sound very good. Um, uh, and that went out as the A-side um, and didn't do anything. And that was the beginning of the end for the T-set, except that we got in with their management and we toured with the Stranglers twice and we toured with the Skids who were on the same agency. Um, so I got to play all those places that I've been to see all these bands in. We got to play the Rainbow. We got to play the Hammersmith Odeon, as it was at the time. We got to tour around the country, all those venues. It's really exciting, but we were third on the bill. Yes, but all but, the same. Yeah. You were there in the transit van doing the circuit. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I mean, I was living the life uh, for about whatever it was, about a year and a half. And then basically the T-set was being pulled in very aggressively in two different directions by two incredibly strong personalities. And it was not surprising that it just all got came apart. Yeah. So who was driving um, the band? Was it Nick or Ron? Uh, well, uh, it was essentially so it was Nick Egan, who then by the end of the by the time the band was coming to an end, Nick, Nick Egan was already Malcolm McLaren's personal assistant and seemed to know absolutely everybody in the music business. Um, incredibly extrovert, very magnetic personality. Um, and Callie, who um, uh, now manages Nick Drake's estate and I think the Unthanks or something like that. Right. Was an A&R man for Polydor for a few years. So, I mean, they both had fairly spectacular careers. Oh, that's um, fantastic. That is so uh, good. But in, in very different ways. And there's no way that I can see either of them relating to what the other is doing now, really, or, or did after the band. They just were, were obviously headed in different directions. And Ron wrote most of the stuff and was quite talented really you know and great eccentric but he was we'd often just sit there in these meetings while Callie and Nick argued for hours um <laughs> and I was I was super quiet and shy I just sort of like I was I was younger than them I was 20 I think I felt really intimidated and out of place yes absolutely and it's quite interesting because I just I was listening to an interview with a guy who's just done a book about Nick Drake, and he said it was really tricky. But once he man, it took him ages to get within the little, the house and the family, and it was like okay, because right, somebody right. else had written the book, and they would like, no, you can't get anywhere close. Shut them out. Yeah, yeah, but they yeah. were shut out. But he, this guy who's just brought the book out, and I think it's probably going to be, be the book of the year for 2023. On yeah. and yeah, it sounded like wow, you got in the inner circle and got the interviews and got access to stuff that no one else has ever done. So. Yes, Callie's done well, hasn't he? Well, he has, you see, and I didn't. I the, a lot of this happened while I was out of the out of the loop. But you know, I mean, he managed Julian Pope and all kinds of stuff. Right. So he did mm. that marvelous stuff. So the the singles that you brought out, which were Cup and Saucers, Perry Thomas, Keep on Running, and South Pacific, and then you had yeah. that John Peel show. They all happened. Then the band split, and then you put a compilation together called Back in Time for Tea. Yeah, so so Nick Egan suddenly got second wind in the, I don't know, about 2016, 2017, and decided he wanted to get the band together and do one last single, which we did. Oh, brilliant. And that did was you? produced by Richard Norris, who was a big fan of our band when he was about 16. Um, and I stayed in touch with Richard, and he's a good producer these days, so that went quite well and then nick got in touch with cleopatra nick lives in la and knows everybody in la so he said oh cleopatra records will do it you know they love it so cleopatra records put out that compilation and nick basically oversaw all of that and was apparently very disappointed that the others in the band weren't pulling their weights and you know pushing it and would probably have loved the band to get back together but um yeah so the but, the new material you did was this one called t T7 South Pacific, Islands of Lost Souls, and um, Time for Tea Again. Were these, was this new recordings? Well, um, I think I think the Back in Time for Tea album has, um, 
it's just the it's just the singles and b-sides from the the you know the 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 paleo tisa era the um uh the late 70s and early 80s and then there was just the one extra there was the one recent track which was pharaohs and those ones you're talking about i think they may be live recordings from the right past. the live um, recordings but you Excellent. know i mean a lot of people are very interested in my time in the tea set but you know i just think okay so it was about a year i was really young um <laughs> i i wrote a couple of tracks that they did which was great that were recorded um and yeah i got some fantastic experience um i think that the recorded stuff to me was mostly very disappointing yes all the really good stuff to me was what happened on stage uh i think the live uh, the live incarnation of the t set with me in it was the best live version but i think that the best recorded stuff they did was really parry thomas and tri x band i think parry thomas actually is a much more successful record than anything we recorded after that Yes. I love Free Thomas. I think it's a great single. Nice. And there you go. That was the end of the band. So um, did you have a moment where you all said, yeah, that's the end, or did you just stop turning up at rehearsals? Well, Nick was Nick Nick just became unavailable most of the time because he was working with Malcolm and incredibly excited about right. that. And there's a little footnote, which some people don't know, which is that a couple of years later, Nick invited me to work for Malcolm. And we did a, uh, uh, Malcolm had this project called She Sheriff, which is a sort of interesting little rock footnote because a lot of people don't know about it and it didn't leave many traces. Um, so I had I had about six months trying to get this band together and this live act together. And there was going to be this great showcase. I can't remember where it was, somewhere like Break for the Border or something. We were all going to be wearing Vivian Westwood's latest collection. And I remember that getting far more everybody fussing around far more about the fact that it was going to be the premiere of this collection than anything to do with the music. Um, and we were using rather primitive technology at that time for acoustic instruments. And the show was a shit show. It was a disaster. There was just howls of feedback all the way through it. We couldn't hear each other. Um, and Malcolm came up to us and said, it's fucking awful. You're fired. <laughs> 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 part of me was a bit relieved and um i th i think malcolm would well it's well known that malcolm could be quite unpleasant to people and i don't really like working with people like that <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, did you keep the clothes he was an amazing character he was hmm? did you keep the clothes did you keep the clothes that you were Sorry. wearing the clothes? Did you keep Vivian's no, clothes? No, no, they were taken off as, as soon as we got off stage. That somebody, you know, uh, made sure that they were they were sort of stowed away somewhere very safe, and we 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 were taken out of those straight away. But yeah, there's a photo somewhere which is quite funny, but it's 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 all a bit in, indistinct. Yes, a very short little footnote in Malcolm's career. There you go. I guess you would have looked at the book. Was it Paul Gorman did a book recently about Malcolm? um a few years ago yeah so there's a few books that that i need to read i haven't read cope's head on which talks about cali and i haven't read the gorman book about malcolm and then richard norris has got a book coming out soon which he talked to me a lot about the time that we knew each other together but yes yeah part, so, so, part of me's 
Sorry, carry on. I was going to say, yes, it's true. But then sort of as the 80s progressed, then you were a solo artist. Did you at that point pick up on the next kind of chapter of music with, I don't know, we'd had punk, post-punk, and then there was a whole wave of new sort of interests and scenes, like there was New Paisley, which we all loved. There was the Batcave and Goth, and then there was Indie Pop with people like the Smiths. So did you sort of feel excited with music still at this stage? Well, I think I did. And I think you probably have had that experience if you if you followed the music press, you know, that these things came in quick succession and you reinvented yourself as a fan of these things each time, you know, I think. And I did a lot of that. And I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read the NME a lot. And so, you know, the NME would sort of do this thing and they suddenly get really into funk and black music. You know, yes. and that was that, that 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 was quite a big turn if you've been some white indie kid to sort of reinvent yourself as that. But you know, I mean, did, I did I did have quite a long period towards the the middle of the eighties of listening to a lot of black music, and I was working for R Price Records, and they moved you around a lot. But when you're talking about being able to hear stuff when you needed to buy it well suddenly i could hear anything i wanted to i could put it on in the shop or you know you could buy it for 99p in the remaindered section or something That's and i nice. had a big record collection around then of of amazing stuff a lot of it gleaned from what what the nme was sort of recommending but a lot of things like that you're talking about you know sort of um paisley underground um what what, what else are you talking about the well, so it was the goth scene that appeared, wasn't there? The the alien sex fiend, and then Bauhaus, and then the Cure, the Cult, you know, all yeah. those films like the Fields of the Nephilim, um, Sisters of Mercy. There was that lead scene that had developed as well, wasn't there? Which came out of the, I think it was where there was a club called the Warehouse, which was quite exciting. So there was a there was that scene, but there was also that kind of. I don't know, Red Wedge movement started, you know, people in a lot of protest music kind of happening. And um, there'd been rock against racism. But then, you know, when the Smiths appeared from 83 to 87, there was definitely another chapter. And then you got all those bands like the June Brides, the Wolfhounds, Yeah, Yeah, No. And um, then the C86 cassette, which came out with all those wedding presents and shop assistants and Big Flame and bands like that. So it's, it was kind of a very varied time. And you had the John Peel show who was playing Aswad and Burning Spear, Misty and Roots, Sly and Robbie and all that, yeah. you know, Gregory Isaacs and, and Dennis Dennis Brown. So, yeah, it was exciting. But so were you in our price, but still a, a bedsit singer? Yeah, and I mean the thing was that through the T set, and this this is a slightly complicated relationship because the T sets. Uh, so Waldo's records, Phil Me, who put out the Clive Peak thing and the the first T set singles, Phil then reinvented himself as Bam Caruso Records and started doing reissues and teamed up with Callie, and Callie would bring Phil tapes from, I think it was Polydor. And did they do Fontana? Or was that part of the roster of company? Something like that. But anyway, Harry would go down into vaults and he'd pull out all these tapes of obscure 60s stuff and he'd bring them back to Phil and he'd say, we could license this stuff and put it out. And Phil also had the most humongous record collection of incredible psychedelic rarities and things like that. And the two of them started putting out all this stuff as the Rubbles compilations. And I had been friendly with Phil for some years by this point. And 
I used to go around to his house a lot, sort of once or twice, three times a week sometimes, and he'd always play me whatever it was he was listening to or excited about. So I had a real education in a lot of that. And then he started saying, oh, we should get Nick involved in some of these things. Um, and so I played guitar on some projects that they cooked up. Callie was a big joker, and he liked the idea of so we had all these invented bands with weird names that he'd think up, things like that, and then he'd put them out as if they were 60s reissues, but they weren't. They were sort of right. Fake. So there's one that we did called The Remains, um, and it was a cover version of Why by The Birds. Um, and um, uh, the cover was just four pictures of Callie wearing psychedelic gear so superimposed on a lot of each other and to this day many people still think that was a real 60s band um and then because it gets out that they're actually they're all cali people say oh he played everything on it well so i i did the guitars on that stuff and then phil did a compilation with cali called the house from the house of lords and that was right. also supposedly all these undiscovered 60s bands but most of them were put together bands for that project and i played the guitar in a lot of those tracks um so i got got in with bam caruso and i've been recording all my stuff at home i wasn't really gigging but i was just recording at home like crazy doing demos of my stuff and phil started getting interested and i think at that point he uh, up until a certain point he wasn't really convinced that there was a, a proper project worth investing in but at a certain point he said you know we should really do your solo album and i had quite extravagant ideas about all the instruments i wanted on it and things like that but he made quite a bit of money out of releasing the Prisoner soundtrack. Right, yes. That made him money, and he had a bit of money in the bank. So um, so I got to record in quite a good studio um, with some session musicians and people that Phil knew who called him favours and things like that, and people I knew who were really good players. And that ended up being my first solo album, The Great Indoors. The Great Indoors. And so who are the other players on that album? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I'd have to think back. Um, there was a guy, so these are probably names that won't really mean very much to most people. The person who was very famous who helped me out, who did a remix of one of my tracks um, and who played on one of them was Jacko Jepchak, who is now the singer and guitarist of King Crimson. Oh, and he was a mate of Phil's, and Phil put out a solo album by him called Big Fish Popcorn. Um, and so Jacko did a remix of two of my tracks, which got put out on a 12 inch single, and he played guitar on a B side of something. Um, and otherwise, they were mostly kind of local people, and the producer was a guy called Brian Marshall, who had done a lot of stuff with Phil. who uh yeah anyway okay so there were there were lots of very very good players on there and i got to do my kind of singer songwriter thing with all these uh you know i got i got i got a string quartet on two tracks yes um, and i got trumpet and double bass and all kinds of stuff like that um and that's what i'm really proud of and people often ask me about the t set probably who may not even know that album but you know that 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 was my big achievement and that's what the people who really know me know about i think yes it's quite a, yeah it's quite an eccentric album isn't it and it's 87 so this is an interesting time when it because there was another album is it colin lloyd tucker 
who did an mm. album for um I think his name no Simon not Colin Simon, Simon Fisher Turner yes he did an yeah. album uh, in yeah. the late that same slightly same period on Creation Records and mm. um it must have lost Anna McGee so much money. It had a famous yeah. actress on it as well. And um, it is yeah, extraordinary, yeah. but it's extraordinary. Well, he was the king of Luxembourg for a while, wasn't he? He was, and he yeah. also was Colin. He, he'd sort of appeared as two women, hadn't they? They'd done that project where they were two women that no one realised. They even played live, and uh, they kept it going for quite a long time, didn't they? I don't know if you know that project, but... Um, yeah, I can't remember the the, the actress that uh, went on to become very famous... I think she appears in a David Bowie. Um, well, there was video. a lot of that stuff on on L Records and things like that. And I, I remember, you know, I've often been compared to lots of people who I didn't really listen to all that much. But um, apart from Sid Barrett and Nick Drake and Kevin Ayers, it came up a lot with that that album. The Monochrome set came up. Oh my God! Quite. Yes, the Monochrome set. Yeah, and then there was um, a, a bit later. There was people like Momus who was appearing, and Lawrence and Felt, and some really yeah. quite extraordinary and eccentric people actually making music. But yeah, Simon Fisher was quite extraordinary as well, actually, and still making music. Were you were you somebody who was who was kind of testing the the, the boundaries of psychedelia and psychedelics and and sort of just having mind altering experiences at this point? Were you, really were you on a mission? The thing is that, um, you know, my so, so I had my older sister, who I get on super well with, who, you know, uh, yeah, so she she introduced me to a lot of the good stuff musically. But then the sister in, in the middle, um, she rather crashed and burned on psychedelics. And she said to me, um, don't ever do LSD, because if you're anything like me, it'll do your head in. And I saw what happened to her, and I steered clear of most drugs. Um, uh, and I wasn't really around people who took a lot of drugs. That you know, later on, I sort of met people who've been through that. But I think, yes. yeah, I'm, I'm a, yeah, I'm a little bit sort of clean cut and clean living. I think, much to the disappointment of a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Every, everyone loves posting up on social media how how many years they've been clean, which I think is the great struggle. Once once you've been through those periods, then getting out of them is is the big kind of the biggest the biggest journey, isn't it? Really, and um, staying off them. But then, so when that album came out and you went, "Wow, that's brilliant!" Where were you thinking the next move was going to be? Did you tour any of it? Were you at all playing live at this stage? Well, I sort of had this had this idea, which I, uh, you know, it, it's taken me a while to to let go of it. But the, one of the other things that I would get compared to over and over again is Pink Floyd, um, mainly the early Pink Floyd. Although the stuff that I probably listened to most of all was after Sid left. You know, those were the ones that I bought and was you know old enough to uh, to get into. Um, but yeah, and and. It got compared to Pink Floyd so many times in such a kind of flattering way. And I think this is going to be really big because it's really like Pink Floyd and Pink Floyd are huge. So it's yes. going to be really big. And I just had this idea in my head that it was in, it was going to be enormously popular and there was going to be a huge audience for it. And there wasn't. And even with the comeback, well, you know, the the the, the return album I made in 2019, I thought that would tap into a sort of huge audience, and it didn't. 
you know, and I just got to let go of that. <laughs> I didn't, I don't think it's going to happen. But, you know, people do say say to me a lot, you know, I, I like your music. It's really like Pink Floyd. <laughs> yes. You, think, you know, but there must be a lot of people out there who like that kind of stuff. <laughs> I guess it, it kind of possibly. So did you then at that point, you know, and I still think there was there was kind of an interesting period because there was, you know, these kind of chapters that seem to happen every three to five years, that next wave of 16, 18 year olds come along and there's a new wave of people doing that first single and album and the John Peel show and a John Peel session as well. And and then they're on the transit van doing doing the country. But, you know, 87, the Smiths breakup, massive moment. Um, and then, you know, there's the ecstasy world. There's the sort of new wave, you know, there's that sort of you know, dance scene with those bands like the Happy Monday, Stone Roses, Soup Dragons and all that, Manchester. And then there's Seattle grunge started to appear in sort of 89 with Bleach from Nirvana before they sort of did Nevermind a few years later. So where were you then artistically and and kind of career-wise? So this... And it's a bit like this, this thing that sent us happening, you know, but I think I'm trying to remember when I probably finished The Great Indoors and I think I probably finished it the year before it came out. And I probably started it about two years before that. And looking at it and looking at the sort of names you, you're talking to me about and some of the names that come up before around the 80s, I think I'd started to drift away from music probably about 85. And I went and did a degree. I th There was one other little strange project. And I, to be perfectly honest, I can't remember whether it came after the album or before. But because I knew Richard Norris, Richard Norris by that time also was sort of following in the footsteps of Nick Egan and just getting to know everybody in the music business and everybody in the kind of alternative indie world. And he'd got very chummy with um, uh, Genesis Peorage. Oh, brilliant. So one of the other little weird footnotes in my story is that I ended up playing on a psychic TV track. Oh. Um, they did a recording of... Eve of Destruction, and I played a guitar solo on it. Nice. Was Dorothy um, Max Pryor around at that stage? Did you ever meet Dorothy? She was in the band for a while. Anyway, there you go. The Eve of Destruction, one of those classic heartfelt songs. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, so I think I think you know there were odd things going on with Richard around that time, but it probably now I think about it, it was probably before the album came. I think I limped along for a year or two after that, but I was bitterly disappointed that the album, I mean, I'd have loved, I I would, I would kill for the sales that I got for that album because I think it, it, I think it went through a couple of pressings, which I think probably means it sold about two or 3000 copies, which today would be just amazing. Yes. Um, but then you know, if you weren't selling 11, 12, 20,000 copies, you were nowhere. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so I, I was I was I was desperately disappointed. And the big problem was that I couldn't pay my bills. Um, I limped along for so long with no money and it just wasn't working for me. I, I had to, to do something different. So I went to university. And I did a degree, and I quickly left the music behind. That was it. You got a you got a, you got a grant at that point as well, hadn't you? Which I was... did get a grant, yeah. And I stayed in higher education because basically people kept telling me that my qualifications weren't good enough for whatever it was I said I wanted to do. So I stayed on until I had a PhD. Yes. Uh, what was your degree in? Well, she so it's cultural studies, and a friend of mine said to me. Um, 
he said uh, he said oh you should really come and do this degree that i'm doing i said oh i need to do something i need to go back to university or something like that and he said go to university he said he said you should come and do the degree i'm doing because he said you like you like music don't you and he said you could just write your essays about music and i thought oh okay well that sounds quite good and then i went to see them and i thought well i've got no qualifications and they were perfectly happy to have me um and um where was where was your cultural studies degree it was at the university of east london and i think probably what took the place of music was politics because right. it was super politicized what we were studying and the general culture what you're talking about with kind of red wedge and everything that was going on with that and i think politics began to become a huge thing in my life yes um, and and th this has been the john major years at this stage wasn't it as we were trucking up to the yeah. to new labor so um but there was a lot to write about the 80s so was that your kind of focus during your degree you know music and writing about music and studying music or did you push that to one side a bit it, it's interesting but it started to fade quite quickly it didn't go quite how i thought which has happened to me before um and actually what what ended up becoming the thing that took over my life as an interest was film which followed on quite well from music um so was soundtrack something that became quite important and or film as an image like Betty Blue or Diva or Paris, Texas or any of those kind of films? What were where were your where was your film taste at this stage? Well, I met a guy called Boris, um, German guy, quite eccentric, very funny and very smart. And he gave me a sort of crash course in sort of cult films and you know, interesting films and i got this job at the scala cinema where i was just an usher but i worked there for about two or three years and i just yeah i mean i just took in a, all kinds of cult films and foreign films and all the stuff that i thought was really interesting um and then um when i left university because i'd become interested in film i got a, a menial job at the british film institute and they said, what do you do to get one of these really interesting jobs? They call them the cultural jobs. And they said, oh, you need at least a master's degree for that. Um, so then I went off and did a master's degree and got more into the film theory and the film studies. And my PhD mm -hmm. about British cinema and the Thatcher and cultural identity. And, um, and then I started teaching film studies, which I enjoyed. And then when I finally got a job at a university, they... The, all the sort of jobs teaching the you know the, the the foreign films and that kind of thing they were all taken up and they just wanted somebody to teach hollywood so i taught taught history of hollywood for many years which Excellent. i quite enjoyed yes well nice so then still going through the decades music still yeah. just very much in the background as you were focused on your studies and um, lecturing yeah and i think you know, I, I think I barely picked up a guitar to the point that, you know, when I when I did start playing again in 2016, I had to go and see a guitar teacher for a couple of lessons. And I was just it was like I'd been in an accident, it was like nothing worked. And it took two or three years for all the sort of movement to come back into my fingers, really, I think. Yes. And what, what made you in 2016 feel the need to get back into a guitar again? Well, I'd um, so two things. Um, while I was still in my job, I 
past 25 years of active service for that university and they gave me 500 pounds for a long service award and they said it's it's usual for somebody to to for us to buy you something that will last so you tell us something that you think you'd like us to buy that will last so i found a nice yamaha acoustic guitar for 500 quid and, um I got to buy that and I thought I'll, I'll start playing the guitar again. Um, and then a few years after that, um, I got really bad burnout. They worked us incredibly hard and um, I left. Um, I got a severance package, things like that. And um, so I started playing around and I got Garage Band on my laptop and started doing overdubs on that and then they talked to Richard and played him some of the stuff we've done he said oh you've got to get logic you'll love it so I got logic on the computer and started doing more ambitious things and then I started to think oh maybe I'm, I'm getting a bunch of new songs I can do something with and then so I started working on an album yes and it um, all started happening didn't it yeah and your so you had your first album which came out 19 this was on dimple disc wasn't it so that was self-released um and um yeah so, so so i just put that up myself and actually it um considering how hard it is to get stuff now it didn't do all that badly shindig did a an interview and a, a review and and i sent a coffee off off to alan moore because richard knows alan moore very well um and i'd met Alan Moore once in when the Great Indoors came out because Richard took me to meet him and he was doing a book signing for Watchmen and right. he, said, uh, he said oh he said he said I love your music he said I listen to it while I work <laughs> oh my god well Watchmen's probably been written to the Great Indoors <laughs> amazing that so is... I sent him a copy of the new album and he sent me back a lovely long letter and he said how much he loved it and he said it reminded him of all the things that he likes about music and so forth um and you know it didn't sell there wasn't really a following not much happened um so this is tends to be what happens i put something out and very very little happens and it doesn't sell but one or two people who matter say really nice things about it and it's just enough to keep me going yeah um, and then uh, so lockdown comes and then is it's the case that you're thinking, hmm, what should I do? And then, so yes, yeah, so how did Dimple Disc suddenly become involved in your life? Um, so that's because um, Brian O'Neill of Dimple Discs uh, was on Facebook with me and we would exchange one or two sort of likes and messages. And I didn't realise that Brian had featured earlier in my life and he had to remind me that he'd actually booked me to appear at the Sir George Roby pub in Finsbury Park in 87, something like that, um, and had been liked my music since then. Um, and we uh, met up. Um, he had tickets. Brian goes out just about every night of the week to see some band. Amazing. And so he got tickets to see a band called Modern Nature, Um because he knew the support act who was Irish. And after that, we had a conversation and I said, well, you know, um, I'm trying to do this music, but I just need somebody to help me find bigger audience for it. And he said, well, I'm going to start up a record label 
uh, or maybe he'd started it already. Um, and he said, I'll do what I can to help you. And at that point, I hadn't actually signed, but I began work on another project. And I said to him, would you like to put this out? And and he said, yes, he would. Um, and so that's helped me a great deal. You know, Brian's incredibly kind and loyal and energetic and has interesting taste in music. So uh, he's introduced me to lots of people who've ended up playing on the last couple of things I've done. So the thing I did in lockdown was, and the thing that I spoke to Brian about, was a reworking of songs from Harry Nielsen's album, The Point. Now, do you right. hear with that? I don't know a lot of Harry Nielsen's. I sort of strangely listened to his daughter often giving little chats about his work. On Instagram. Obviously. Yes. Yeah. Do you yeah. listen to those as well? Yeah. So I didn't know a great... I, he's one of these people, you know, I start off a project and realise that there's almost nothing I know about this person. Um, but... Um, yeah, so the thing was that that just had a bit of resonance for me because the soundtrack album from The Point was one of the first albums uh, that I became very familiar with when I was about 12. I knew mm -hmm. these twins at school and they had a brother who, older brother who was a stoner um, and the parents hated the older brother and despaired of him and the twins idolised him. And he used to play this album over and over again. And these twins, 12-year-olds, they were just completely captivated by this album. They just thought it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So I listened to it a bit when I was 12. Um, and I don't remember what it was that brought it back to me. But um, I began really playing it a lot. And I fell in love with it. And I suddenly realised what an interesting guy he was and how many people who I was impressed by and liked who were huge supporters of him when he was alive yes. and he was involved with. So as Van Dyke Parks was a huge admirer of, of Nielsen um, and Randy Newman also. Um, so all, all sorts of people. And today still a lot of people just, just say, my God, you know, he was just such a fabulous songwriter and singer. Um, and I just thought, well, this is quite interesting because probably most people don't know these songs and don't realise how good they are. Um, so I just set to work on them. And during lockdown, I got Brian to suggest people and I would email them and they'd send me back parts. And Brian knows a lot of seriously good players. Again, not necessarily famous people, but just really no. good players and singers. So I just got a whole bunch of people together and we made this album and I asked and it's still not come out. I mean, there's a bit of a tale to tell about that. I'm hoping it'll come out next year. Um, and then when I finished that, I started work on the one that's out now. So what's the one electromagnetic imagery then? Is this another? Yeah, so that was kind of just put together a bit for Brian and Dimple Discs. So I, Brian has you know, has to manage his slender resources. And he said to me, you know, well, it's probably going to be a little while before I can put out your next album. And I said, what about we do something interim um, before the next album come out as a bit of an introduction to my stuff? And we could do a mini album. And I've got various oddities that I could put together for that. And we'll do it as an instrumental mini album. And I decided to call it the Electromagnetic Imaginary because I think I've found out 
possibly a book by David Stubbs or somebody like that about electronic music. Oh, yes, Mr. Stubbs. We love him. Something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, I remember coming across this and thinking, oh, I quite like the sound of that. So, um, and I thought it would tie into a sort of certain kind of Alan Moore mystical sci-fi thing. So, um, yeah. uh, So I put together a, a, a mini album of stuff and Brian put that out. And again, that did really badly i think um brian massively overordered thinking that it would do really well um and it's just started to pick up it's just started to sell some copies but i think when it came out it didn't really do anything uh but one track uh got quite popular on some of the indie radio stations and right. the guy who does freedom mayor keith jones he put it on a compilation um Yes. So it's sort of slow burners. Dimple Disc is quite an amazing project, isn't it, actually? Um, I know there was a member of, I think, a band called Stump. I think he's done a solo album as well. I mean, it is an incredibly, I mean, fantastic label, but wow, quite extraordinary, isn't it? So then did you say, right, I've got another album, Brian, what time can can do? So, yes. So how did you do Sorry, I, I I had most of that recorded, um, and I just needed to finish it off. And actually, I felt like it could do with a a sort of a lead track. I kind of felt like the candidates for lead tracks were not necessarily very representative, or you know, I wasn't quite entirely happy with them. And then I decided to call it "What Time Can Do," and there's a whole story behind that probably taken up way too much of your time already i'm not going to tell you that but anyway i had this i had this line what time can do and um uh i was playing around with some chords um and i came up with a chorus that fitted what time can do and then i the 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 words came quite fast so i wrote the title track after the whole the rest of the album was all finished in about a week and it had all been finished in about two weeks. And the person who's been very, very central to the music I've been making with The Point and with What Time Can Do is Marcus from the High Llamas. And oh, yes. Brian introduced me to him, and he was the keyboard player of the High Llamas, but he's also a multi-instrumentalist. He plays cello and guitar and all sorts of stuff. Um and Brian said, oh, you should really get together with Marcus and do some stuff. And Marcus was incredibly generous with his time. I sort of feel like the the picture's become, you know, I, I feel like I'm already a musical shapeshifter that people can't quite get a handle on. And I feel like that hasn't really done me any favours with audiences. I feel people don't really know who I am. And maybe they hear one thing that they like and hear they hear something else, but maybe they feel like it doesn't fit with what they like. I don't know how it works. But um, adding Marcus has kind of complicated the picture even more because Marcus has brought a bunch of influences that aren't necessarily where I've been before. Marcus is much more jazzy. Um, yes. Is that why my buddy, my funny Valentine appears? Well, so I have actually done usually, uh, I have a little bit of a thing with the American, what they call the American songbook, you know, the classic American songwriters. Yes. One of the things I've always thought was there's always people trying to be Paul McCartney and all they ever do is copy Beatles records and they never trace it back to what formed McCartney, you know. And I think one of the things that formed McCartney and a lot of the great songwriters was growing up in a household where on the radio all the time were playing, you know, Cole Porter, Gershwin, all these things like this. And and I realised if you wanted to get the great chord changes and things like that, you know, you go to songs like that. 
So I I did I that was independent of Marcus, and it was um, so I have actually done a uh, uh, that's things like that before. I did every time we say goodbye was a B side by Cole Porter. That was a B side when I did the Great Indoors. Yes, um, and um, but Marcus brought to that um, the sort of you see it's a particular kind of jazz because I. I'm interested in Latin jazz. That's the kind of thing that I played with before. And what Marcus brings to it is the, you know, the the sort of lounge core, easy listening kind of jazz. Um, uh, but you know, Marcus Marcus is a very versatile musician as well. Um, but I, I think the last two albums have been quite strongly marked by stuff I've done with him. Yes, absolutely. Because it does. I mean, there is a lot of different. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good for that reason, in a way, that it is such a variety, because in a way, when you think, oh, dear, this is going to be the whole album of one thing, it can, even if you like it, it can be a bit tricky, because you, you've got an amazing version of uh, Canon, the last track on the album as well, which is a nice little touch. Whose idea was that? Oh, well, I mean, I I um, I really like the Bert Yanch version of In the Bleak Midwinter, and I tried yes. to sing it. And I struggle with my voice. Um, you know, there are times when I think it works quite well and there are times when I think it doesn't work at all. So I tried singing it and I wasn't happy with it at all. And I played around with it as an instrumental. And I suddenly thought, you know what, I think this works better as an instrumental. And then I thought, well, there's not much point in calling it In the Bleak Midwinter because what I'm actually doing is playing the hymn that In the Bleak Midwinter is based on. Um so that's that's why I called it Cranham because that was it that was what it was originally called and then Christina Rossetti wrote words for it and it became in the bleak midwinter. Um, but I just thought you know it's a beautiful tune and it, yeah it harks back a little bit to Bert Yanch I suppose except that the way that I arranged it was very different to his. Um, yes, and there's also the track before that I love it's it's all Margaret Thatcher's fault. So it was <laughs> this was. So yes, how did this song sort of develop, and and where did that inspiration come from? I mean, I do look back a lot, and I think I look back to the time when I was doing my degree, and we were all very political, and we were so obsessed with hating Thatcher that at one point I remember somebody saying, you know, uh, oh yeah, because I mean everything's Margaret Thatcher's fault, isn't it? And then we all laughed and we said, yeah, of course. <laughs> and then that became a kind of a standing joke that everything was Thatcher's fault, no matter how ridiculous. So I just wrote a song about a guy. And it's, it's the kind of thing that I used to get from people like Randy Newman. I love this thing. I do it a lot where because people, you know, the first thing Marcus said to me was he said, well, who's singing this song? Because he said he said, you say in the song you're fat, but you're not fat. You know, so it's the kind of thing that Randy Newman was brilliant at where you just take on a persona and you write from that from a character you know invent a character so i yes. do that a lot anyway i very rarely write about myself in, in songs they're mostly some kind of persona so i just kind of got the idea of somebody who'd grown older and just got more and more obsessed and more and more crazy so that you know stubbing his toe was margaret thatcher's fault and anything that happens to him is thatcher's fault kind of thing yes uh, and uh, have you enjoyed that last couple of you know this last period of making music again has that sort of have you felt very rekindled with this sort of the the idea of becoming a musician and sort of putting out an album yeah i mean i love it really and it it has 
it has really reinvigorated me and uh i've loved making the last three albums they've been really incredibly satisfying and i sort of feel that i'm mostly pretty happy with them there's odd things that i think oh my god you know i really dropped the dropped a bollock on that one or something like that but um uh for the most part i'm pretty happy with that i achieved what i wanted to get that i got the sound and i've taken more and more of it in-house so with the 2019 album i mixed a lot of that in a local studio with a nice guy who's got you know quite a good experience as an engineer um but I kept taking stuff home from there that I paid to do and going back and redoing it. So this time I just did everything at home on my laptop, including the mastering. Um, and that was quite a high risk strategy because I'm not an engineer. But I just kind of felt that most of it sounds the way I want it to like, even if it's an engineer might say it's not all that hot, you know, <laughs> but um uh, well, it's, so, well, it's interesting because I do quite, quite a few people I seem to interview now seem live in sort of deserts in in America, you know, and they've they've just got this shack behind them, and that's where they're writing, recording, doing it on that little computer, and then just putting it out, and and all collaborating with members from around the world, and and just sending files to each other. So it's music has changed quite drastically, actually, and um, and everyone just says, hand. well, you know, the important thing is the spirit of the music and the and what you take to the instrument rather than the the whizzy technology and engineering. And I, you know, I'm afraid to say, you know, I I think that, you know, Brian sometimes is quite good at bringing you down, down to earth. And he said, oh, you know, oh, so-and-so, I think it was one of his acts had put that they were a producer on their Instagram profile. And he said, well, there's no point putting that because everybody's a fucking producer now, aren't they? <laughs> um, you know, and, and I sometimes think, you know, oh, my God, I produce that. It sounds great. And then, of course... I would never have been able to get that without the help of all these apps and this AI stuff and things like that. You know, you are really being helped a lot by the tech. Yes. Um, so with the album coming out, is there any plans to do any live shows and and to sort of take out take it on the road? Or yeah, totally. And I mean, I just have to try and it's um uh I don't think any any of my stuff, well, maybe the electromagnetic imagining when it came out but you know none of my stuff was what i considered to be an all-out flop but everything i've done has been a huge disappointment to me in terms of audience you know and i i haven't been able to build a really strong following i've got i've got a few people who've carried on listening to music and buying it right from the great indoors to now and i'm enormously happy and grateful for that but that's nowhere near enough to sustain a career and I, I really need to build a proper base. Um, yes. And the, I'm just in a paradox at the moment because I am playing gigs again now and they're going well and the response has actually been great. And actually, I'm, you know, I'm getting far more really sustaining feedback from doing the gigs than I am from releasing stuff. Um, but I have difficulty getting people to come along to the gigs. A lot of people I know they're a certain age they tend to stay at home quite a lot they probably just kicks. Um, uh, many of them didn't know me when i was a musician and still a bit surprised to hear that i play music and haven't yet checked me out uh, yes uh and um i don't quite know where i fit in with the world as it is at the moment probably no more than i 
fitted in when I made the great indoors. But you know, being part of Brian's thing is my lifeline really, and that keeps keeps me going and gives me hope that I can, you know, build something up. And the gigs have gone very well, you know. And I did a gig the other day. The, the, no, nobody came to see me, but there was a young guy who was headlining. He was on Brian's label, Luca. And so there were a lot of people in their twenties to see him and they love my stuff. And that was really, really gratifying to me. But it, and I think it, yeah, actually, I think it probably go down pretty well with younger people. I've, I've had some very good experiences with that. Yes. I know it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, like all these people who made music, still making music, you know, sometimes have had to have a, a, you know, just a period of making money elsewhere, but just really love the idea of being back in the studio trying to create something. And it's, you know, so many people are sort of in that similar situation to you of just thinking, I just really love doing it. And I just would love more people to hear what I'm doing because I'm incredibly pleased with it, all proud of it. So, um, yes, it's good that Dimple Disc has picked it up, actually. And, yeah, you know, I mean... It's a, a lot of people are in that situation, and I've come to know some of the people who are on Brian's label, and I mean people like, actually, you know, I, I confess that one of the one of the people who completely dropped below my radar is that act was the High Llamas. Yeah. So uh, and, until Brian introduced me to the High Llamas a few years ago, I had no idea about them, but you know, I do really love the albums now, and I know uh, I get to see. Uh, Sean quite a few times Sean O'Hagan you know and and he's really struggling to get gigs and to get people to come out to gigs and things like that and you know the the numbers that people are selling are um, you know uh, I think if you sell 200 copies in an indie thing you're doing pretty well Um, but um, so with this album you can get the digital album but you can also can you get a cd what about um i guess you're not going to do vinyl are you on these so vinyl was always planned and brian when i was doing the point brian was very excited about it and he said he said we've got to have this out on vinyl he said it's an obvious vinyl thing and he loved the the artwork that i prepared with a friend of mine and he said this is going to be fantastic on vinyl and then i think you know the budget's have just shrunk a lot because well you know i think most people are finding it a very challenging environment at the moment and i think a lot of the sales have gone down for the indies yes um, so i don't think there's a budget for vinyl at the moment um and i i i hope that the point will come out sometime songs from the point will come out sometime yes the first half of next year but and then once that's done, will you be sort of looking to still keep writing more material for another album? I think I'm going to take a bit of a break from writing and recording if things go according to my plan and try and build up the live gigs more. Um, yes. So I go out with different um, lineups, you know, um, I've done a lot with Marcus and Marcus is a wonderful musician to play with. Uh, live um but i've also done gigs without marcus and i've got a couple of other people who join me um and um i'm i've had to push myself because i'm quite i i used to suffer from crippling shyness i used to be 
when I was in the tea set, I was super shy. People said to me, oh, you know, you hung out with the tea set. What were they like? I said, I don't know. I never talked to them. I was much too shy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but I'm getting over that a bit. But I, I don't, I don't, I have to push myself to try and get gigs. And I have to sort of push myself to feel like, feel good about going, going and playing, playing in front of people. But it's it's been going really well. And I, I want to do more of it and see if I can make a go of it. Excellent. Excellent. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starts now, is there anything in particular that would you'd say, oh, yes, I would have mentioned that to them? Um, <laughs> don't get your hopes up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh I still think that, you know, I what I do, I feel, is about some kind of magic. And some, there's something about what Alan Moore picks up on in my stuff that I think is what's best about it. Um, and I might even have just said to my 16-year-old self, you know, it's something like it's about the magic, something like that. Because uh, John Leckie said that in a documentary. There was a documentary about Rockfield Studios. Oh, yes. We love Rockfield, don't we? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's worth it, seeing. I, I can't remember if it's on Netflix or something, maybe. But, I think um, I, I think BBC did one on, uh, you know, because there's, you know, such a great story. And it's sort of, it does manage to go from one period to another, doesn't it? From the 70s through to, yes, the the great sort of period of... Is it the Stone Roses and people like that were there? And um, yes, it's a it's a great story, isn't it? So, so, so I think I think at one point John Leckie's interviewed and, and he just says, you know, um, uh, well, you know, let, let's face it, what you're trying to get down on tape is magic and mystery because that's what all the great records are about. Um, and so that's also one of the reasons why. I'm I feel like I'm getting down what I want to get down when I just work on my own um in the studio. Um and um I, I heard that about Kate Bush as well. They said that she would just keep doing things over and over and over again. And the musicians couldn't really see what she was going for. And they 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 said that it was obvious that what she was going for wasn't some kind of technical perfection. Um and they said they realized after a while it was just some kind of magic that she was just right. trying down and i feel very much like that when i feel like something has worked and i'm actually really fond of the one i did in 2019 um i listen back to it and i think oh my god you know i should have got somebody else to play the bass in i shouldn't play the bass myself or something you know and things like that there's all kinds of stuff that i could have done better but i just feel like the whole thing is just like full of a strange kind of atmosphere that was really what i wanted to get yes um and it's interesting because earlier you mentioned the uh, was it Gentle Giant. I know one of the members of the band, he passed away, I think, quite recently. But he became one of those producers that a lot of indie bands went and worked with. And they said it was really nice because he his wife would be often sort of coming through and would say, oh, this sounds quite good to some quite interesting and obscure indie band. And I always quite like that, you know, about the... Was, was it of, Phil Shulman? Or... It might have been... But um, whoever I know who went talking about who I, I read about that that he'd done 
produced a lot of younger bands. Yeah, it must have been him. And he passed away quite recently. So I could see that a lot of people were like, oh, no, he was such a great good dude. And we did a great album. But a few people just mentioned his wife coming through, almost like, oh, I've got your tea, tea's on the table. Oh, this sounds quite nice. <laughs> so, quite a nice <laughs> auto, you know. Quite, you know, it's like when she gave the thumbs up, it must have been quite good. So there you go. <laughs> I will actually, the Gentle Giant is one of those bands because I was very influenced with prog rock with my older brother who was seven years older. And, um, but you know, so it was all, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, and all those bulky James Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. But he never had, um, yeah, he didn't have Gentle Giant. So it never, you know, he had Camel, he had, you know, Steve Hackett and all that. But I must try and play a bit of Gentle Giant and, um, See why I think I of did, it. You know, I mean, in a way, you know, I mean, that 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 was obviously a very key time for me when those bands were around, and I saw a lot of them live. But I think there was something very distinctive about my musical development in having these older brothers and sisters, and having yes. that kind of very strong link to the sixties as well as the early seventies. <clears> so I suppose my music, I think about it as a bit like a sort of time traveling, and think about it a bit like a TARDIS that it sort of goes around all over the place in terms of where it's going to land you never when i write a song i never really know where it's going to land you know time wise and influences but um i keep sort of coming back to the early 70s and i think some people had me pegged as a very 60s person because of my association with phil and bam caruso and i and you know they, they kept talking about the you know, the sid barrett era floyd and things like that um and and some of that was a bit early for me because it was you know, I wasn't old enough at that time when that came out. But some of yes. it, some of some of that stuff that did come out in the sixties, I was actually listening to as a kid. Um, so, and rather like my sister, you know, I feel like quite a lot of people of my age and a bit older who were exposed to those influences firsthand at the time um, haven't come through the whole process very well or they've died or they've burnt out or they're doing some kind of rather crappy muso stuff or something like that and i sort of feel like i'm sort of somebody who was exposed to those influences at first hand who perhaps partly because i was away from it for quite a long time managed to sort of keep something intact about all that about that period of time yes Quite um, pure or quite um, genuine, I suppose. Did yeah. you ever sort of get into, it was a band, my first band that I felt like I discovered for myself rather than my brother, which was Spirit with old dear old Randy California. Yeah, I love Spirit. My, my, my hip sister had the 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. Yes. And, and I was... played that over and over again. And I was probably about 11 or 12 when I when when she brought that Yeah. <laughs> It was a, such an amazing album, but um, it, yes, it's, it's, it is a it's a fantastic album. Yeah, yeah, such a beautiful. I mean, it's interesting with music because I always feel like it is it is so much in the moment, and with you know so much, it's about having those kind of planets lining up to record that moment, and then that's gone, isn't it? It's just it's so there, it's so fleeting. I think that's the thing about creativity, which is quite boggling, and it's um being able to sort of get it all in shape just for that moment. There's been quite a few people I've interviewed who've been sort of, who get into quite a lot of excitement and, and wanting, I think, to write a book about that creative process and what makes that record brilliant compared to just okay. You know, it's that kind of, 
Well, it's magic think... again, you know, I think there's something, some records are magic. 12 Dreams of Dot Sardonicus, I think, is one of those records that's kind of, it's all about atmosphere and mystery and magic. Yes, I know. It's got everything in it. Yes, from, I don't know, there's Nature's Way, which is obviously pretty predictable. There's a couple of other songs that I haven't played for ages, which I remember being very sort of amazed by, which were just, yeah. And then there was a few other, because they got into quite a lot of concepts as well. So I do remember they would sort of, I, they probably were very stoned at the time. So mm. it did get a bit, but I quite enjoyed some of it. So there you go. But look, Nick, thank you ever so much for this. It's been amazing. And um, if you want, I can always give you and, and send you the link once I've done, you know, when it's up. And you can always use it on your social media platform sites, which is always okay. Well, that would be that would be really good. Thank you. Yeah, yes. I, do, I do my best to do the social media thing. Um, and uh, yeah, but um, thank you so much. It's been really good to talk to you. And, and you've got a great, um, great set of references. There's not many people who I could talk to who can riff off all those different things. I know. I kind of yes, I, yes, I should get yes, I should get out more, but um never mind. Just and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, just in case you didn't know. Anyway, a massive thank you to Nick Hefner for giving me the time for that interview. I will put a link in the notes below on Bandcamp so you can find out more information and also his website as well. If you want to contact me, I know little old me, you can on um, Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show, you will find me. And also, all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Anyway, have a great week, stay safe.